0: Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma buddhāṃ dhammāṃ Sanghang namāsāmi Just um, occurred to me that uh, it's been a week since we all gathered here. Remarkable, <laughs> this um, particular Dharma family has uh, gathered together uh, <clears throat> when there was a. a an English monk who's been living at Abhayagiri Monastery uh, in the first couple of years that uh, that we were there was heading uh, on uh, to stay uh, in Canada. Actually, he was leaving uh, leaving Abhayagiri. We were sitting at the airport, and someone who uh, was with us said, "Well, what was your your impressions of your time here in in California, Ajahn ViSudi?" And he said. It was an eternity that went by in a flash. <laughs> He's very good at these uh succinct and profound observations. So uh, it's uh it's uh, it's like that, isn't it? This uh, you say we've been here for a week. That's both forever <laughs> and like just. Nothing. But uh, (coughs) certainly in the conversations uh, that we've been having in the the interviews, such like many questions uh, coming up for people about how to translate, how to carry this kind of practice that uh, Ajahn Sumedho has been articulating so copiously and... uh, splendidly, uh, for the last week. Uh, how can this be carried on, carried through outside of the, the uh, optimal, uh, perfect conditions of living here at uh, Spirit Rock in the, the glories of, uh, of summer? That's a reasonable question. It come, <laughs> comes up in some way, shape, or form in pretty much every retreat, and it's, it's also the same people are asking the question. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still reasonable because you know, <laughs> it's that, that uh, curiosity. How do you do this? How do you? How do we keep this this going in the very, very different physical and social circumstances? <laughs> well, there's many, many different ways to approach or ponder, explore that that question. But uh, um, one of the thing that one of the things that's um, occurred to me, and, and I've been saying a, a lot in the little groups, um, is about how um, sometimes we we make a mistake that we feel in order to be practicing. <laughs> We have to. It's only. We're only practicing if we're sustaining the same kind of acute attention to every little nuance of feeling and thought and perception that, that we do when, when we're on retreat. And if, and if we can't do that, then our practice is, is falling apart or failing or not as good as when we're in retreat. Uh, but uh, there's there's a di- what I've uh, I've been suggesting, and I found very much m- for myself, is there's a a way that we can, um, in a way, f- frame our experience uh, when we're confronted with a lot of activity or obstructive conditions. Say if we if we've fallen ill, or things are very busy, or active, confusing, noisy, engaged with a lot of interaction with others, and so forth. Is that uh, we can set up the conditions beforehand? So, say for example, um, we uh, we know that things are about to get busy, you know, or we have a very strong suspicion that after somewhere around noon on Sunday, <laughs> yeah, we will a, a di- we'll enter a different bardo state, <laughs> a different. Uh, dimension of being and uh, people will start talking with each other again and well you guys will start talking with each other again (laughs) we've been chattering away vigorously (laughs) (laughs) dhammically of course Um, but uh, before entering into a state of activity or receiving a lot more uh, engagement action uh, what we can do is uh, is to Make it clearly conscious to ourselves when things are, are quite still and steady, to say, "Well, this is this is reality. This is the norm. Let's call let's let's be clear that this is the baseline. This is the reference point. And whatever happens after this, don't trust it." <laughs> and so. Uh, and then as, uh, as you enter into that engagement or activity or that sort of blur, whether it's just during the course of a day or sort of weeks or months or whatever it might be, yeah. um, then when the, the next moment of or time of, of stillness and composure comes, comes by when the illness passes or the, the busyness of the day uh, rounds on you know, and subsides, then... Uh, there's a way we can look back at what's just occurred and say, yes, what was that all about? <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, that was all just uh, the blur of a dream. I used to do this very consciously when I lived at uh, at Lumpur's monastery in England, Amravati. Um, I was there for about 10 years. And uh, Amravati is, uh, as someone uh, was saying in one of the groups today, that uh, they thought, go to this... You know, Buddhist monastery in England, it'll be this kind of quiet, serene life. And she said, I've never been in such a busy place in all my life. <laughs> yeah, there's about 50 or 60 people that live there, and then uh, a, a, a flow of visitors um, coming through uh, daily. And then on the weekend, probably um, 80 or 100 people come, uh, uh, both on Saturday and Sunday at the mealtime, just drop in. <laughs> and if you think you have um, difficulties in the kitchen here with food preparation and organisation, when you've um, uh, either the ex- the example of you've just prepared food for eighty people and then uh, six families show up with with <laughs> with an with an entire banquet, so that all the food that you've prepared is now additional superfluous. <laughs> Or uh, on the other end of the spectrum where you've been told that six or eight families are showing up and there'll be food for everyone, so don't prepare anything. And then 10 o'clock comes, 10.30 comes, 11 o'clock comes, and you realize they're not coming. <laughs> <laughs> this actually happened one day when we had an open day. Uh, when uh, We uh, built this new meditation hall, this temple building, and there was... Um, and a weekend of, of uh, festivities, and there was eight hundred people coming on the Saturday and fifteen hundred people on the Sunday. On the Saturday, the meal was supposed to be organised by a collection of Thai restaurants in London, and this, this this kind of process occurred. Ten o'clock, nobody came, and they were providing food for eight hundred. <laughs> Ten o'clock, hadn't come. Ten thirty, hadn't come. So then uh, my uh, a friend and uh, fellow monastic companion, Ajahnata Pema, who was one of the main organizers of this event, called up the, uh, the restaurateur in London and said, Root, uh why are you answering the telephone? You're supposed to be here with, with food for everybody. He said, oh, no, no, that's tomorrow. He said, no, this is Saturday, Anarut. You were coming on Saturday. No, no. Oh, was it? <laughs> So, uh, so they, you know, the the kitchen had to uh, conjure up uh, food for eight hundred in half an hour. <laughs> about forty-five minutes, actually. So, <laughs> so um, the the place can have a kind of a dynamism about it, you know. <laughs> Where it's not that was a kind of an extreme incident, but that kind of um, uh, movement and change and activity can be happening a lot of the time. So, uh, I was in the role of, of monastery secretary organizer type and involved in a, uh, a lot of the administration and teaching and virtually every meeting that was every meeting that occurred at Amravati except for the nuns' meetings uh, involved me somehow. So that uh, it was just a blur often from one end of the day to the next. So what I would do is that uh, we would have the morning uh, the morning puja would be at five, and then we'd have a sitting five thirty to six thirty. And during that sitting, I would very sort of clearly and consciously kind of open myself to the stillness and spaciousness, and say, "Okay, now this is this is the um, this is the ground. This is the, the basis. Whatever happens after this, don't believe it." <laughs> <laughs> and then six thirty, long forward, ding. <laughs> Ring the bell, and then the day would begin, and there would be, you know, ten thousand things to do and engage with, and and uh, uh, and be involved in in one way or another, uh, making phone calls and doing classes and doing this and that, endless meetings, <laughs> incredible numbers of meetings, <laughs> at least four a day it seemed. But uh, and then the evening would come, the evening puja, meditation, and then finally I get back to my room about. 10, sometimes ten thirty. I'd be sitting alone in my room, and I would quite consciously sort of sit and wait till that I found that sort of I was back with that same spacious stillness. It was like closing the parenthesis. I used to imagine it's like the, you know, the bracketing the whole day, like embracing the whole day with these sort of parentheses of silence and and stillness and just so I would just hold the whole day like that well what was all that about <laughs> what happened there but uh, the significant piece in a way is that in the mean in the middle piece i wasn't trying to be sort of mindful of everything that was going on during the day i wasn't sort of doing any particular practice except other than just staying with what the moment demanded and just going with with what was was happening you know being attentive but not trying to do anything or any kind of special practice except other than be, be attentive to what was, was going on in a very kind of open and, and fluid manner. And, and I found that there was a, a, a kind of strange and beautiful chemistry to, to working in this way that I could I could survive quite happily at Amravati. In fact, uh, it was known for, for, by most people as a sort of burnout station. You know, you <laughs> You'd go there, and after a couple of years, you'd be fried. And more often than not, it was because people were sort of trying to to preserve a kind of a little sort of enclaves of complete control. <laughs> Fools. <laughs> <laughs> or have their own space, or have their, you know, uh, time to be, uh, you know, sort of things to be uh, more like they were in a, in a more sort of remote or quiet or, 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 or um, less engaged situation, um, and uh, and in a way, it, it it seemed to be like that. Trying to do that, even though it seemed like a, a skillful intention, it's rather like using the wrong tool for the job, like like cutting the cutting the lawn with a with a scalpel rather than a lawnmower. <laughs> You know, you're trying to use too fine an instrument for the task in hand. So, dealing with our our, our daily lives and engaging with family and work and money and retirement plans and, and going from A to B and back again that uh, that we all do. That sometimes that uh, just using a, like, uh that quality of overarching mindfulness. Um, so that we're, when' there's the supportive conditions are there, like the beginning of the day and before everyone else gets up or at the, and the end of the day, or it can be over longer spans of time, you know, it can be a whole sort of weeks or, or months, but just that uh, way of uh, framing, embracing our, our uh, the busyness of our lives uh, with that that's kind of clear. Conscious awareness. This is the stuff, this is the place to trust, this is the quality to, to, to go by, this is to what, what to judge things by this clarity, stillness, spaciousness. And the rest is, is uh, the, um, you know, the, the dream of the, of the human world. And uh, and what you find, strangely enough, is that, or as I found, was that the, the, the more you do that, you actually find yourself more in tune with things and more able to work effectively. <laughs> while you're are operating like that rather than if you're trying to sort of be mindful or do or control things or trying to um, um, say think about or or, or like uh, say order the the flow of events now I was also reminded of a of an incident today in one of the, one of the conversations where um it was the, the uh, World Cup final, of, the, of uh, the World Soccer Cup final. And uh, it, the scores were tied at the end of the game. And so they're having a penalty shootout. So this is a, in the, in the soccer-playing world, this is an extremely important moment. <laughs> you know, it's like the, so the, the last 15 seconds of the Super Bowl and the scores are still tied, that kind of thing. So Italy, I think Italy and Brazil had to have a penalty shootout and um, they'd, uh, they they'd had, I think, four people from either side or five people from one side and four people from either side and Roberto Baggio for Italy was still to, to, to have his shot at the penalty and he was regarded as the best footballer in Europe kind of a prize-winning star player and uh, you know, highly accurate, never misses and so there he was sort of lining up for his shot but uh, he was, uh, uh, he he'd taken on the um, kind of Nishiren Buddhism, Sokha Gakkai Buddhism, you know, the, reciting the mantra, Namo Myoho Renge Kyo, you know, and you pray to the Buddha to achieve your particular desired results. <laughs> Recite your mantra, and, and uh, somehow or other the Buddha or somebody gives you what you want. <laughs> you know, uh, that's probably a coarse way of talking about it. But anyway, the, the story goes. I don't know if this is true, but it's a, it's a good story anyhow was that um, so? Roberto Baggio was lining up his shot and then starts repeating, Namo Myoho Renge Kyo, kind of praying to the Buddha to help guide his foot. And then he, he made his shot and he missed. And uh, Brazil won the World Cup and Italy lost. <laughs> and so um, the, the, uh, the feeling was, if only he hadn't been reciting his mantra and he just concentrated on the ball. <laughs> <laughs> He would have probably scored a goal and they would have won. And I think this is a common experience for all of us, maybe not quite so extreme, but it's like when you try to do something, the tryingness can easily get in the way. Like with the chanting, you know, if if I, when I'm leading the chanting, if I think too hard about what comes next, then I, I, my mind goes completely blank. So if I, if I'm just sort of, not trying too hard, I can just trust that I know what the words are. I've done this thousand times, ten thousand times. You know, I know what the words are. Like Roberto Baggio, his feet knew where to go. But then because of the tryingness, then we, 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 can, we flunk it. We, we, we mess things up. So that uh, in a retreat situation like this, and uh, in periods of formal practice in our own homes and that, what we're doing is, this, in a way, establishing a clear and full knowledge, a direct uh, acquaintance with that fundamental quality of the deathless, that uh, spacious, timeless, open, impersonal, uh, peaceful and beautiful basis of, of the mind. This, Whether we, we feel like... Well, the others might have been doing that, but... Uh, <laughs> But even for every one of us, for some moments during this time, there we've, there's been some kind of realization of that, some direct uh, recognition, the knowing of that quality. So that the more we fully let that into the heart, the more we fully allow ourselves to know that, trust that, yes, this is the basis of my reality, this is what is real, this is it, this is the reality. The more we, do, we, the more we allow that in, and that becomes the, the, the source of faith, sadha, or confidence. So the more fully we know that, then whatever is, sort of comes in on top of that or, or occludes that in terms of things that we see or feel or hear or what we experience in the body, you know, activity or sickness or pleasure or pain, that that, rather like you know, the chanting that you know or, or like the, where, the, how the, 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 where the feet need to move, you know the body remembers. You know you you know your stuff. You, you, we know that, and so that if we ha- we have that, um, the more deeply that's that's rooted in us, then the uh, that faith will operate. That will support us, and so then we are able to to function in the, our our interactive world, relating to other people, talking and doing and decision making, and. That quiet, subtle presence of that realization informs what we do. It colors our intentions, our our love of the good, our readiness to be kind, to to, uh, bring forth compassion, to to be cool and to be still when it's the time to to, uh, hold back. It's like training the heart to, to trust its own intuitions and then... And then when the conditions open up, it's a quiet time of the day, or there's time for another retreat, or you have time alone in the, in the woods, then we can take that space and that time, those supportive conditions like, like here at Spirit Rock, to again uh, 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 reacquaint uh, ourselves with that, that fundamental quality, which like the nada sound is always here, it never goes away. It can't disappear anywhere. But it's just we uh, we can lose track of it. We can miss it. Like uh, Ajahn Chah would say, the Dhamma is like groundwater. You know, it's always there. You just have to dig for it. You know, you don't create it, but if you don't dig, you don't, <laughs> you, don't, you, don't you don't reach it. So, so the, that this quality of the deathless, of the unconditioned. This uh, inner stillness and brightness, spaciousness, it's always here. It's like the nada sound, it's always present, but it's just, uh, <coughs> uh, it needs to be to be dug for, to be realized, to be, to be noticed. But then when, when we do, when that is tapped into, then it's like water, it's the, it's the, the life source. The deathless is, uh, is the source of, of life, of our and being truly alive. Like the, the verse that uh, Lumpur quotes uh, at the beginning of each of his Dhamma talks, open other doors to the deathless, let, let those um, who can hear uh, uh, bring forth their faith. The, uh, <coughs> and uh, the passage from the Dhammapada of uh, mindfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die, the heedless are as if dead already. So that this is what it means. The, the the mindful never die. When there's true mindfulness, it doesn't mean our bodies won't croak, you know. <laughs> you know the body bodies will pack up, but you know, since the body is not self, it's no big deal, right? <laughs> Simple logic, but not always that easy to 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 realise. But what we're doing with this practice is, is realizing the deathless, realizing there is that dimension of our being which was not born and which does not die, which, for which the cycles of time uh, have, have no connection, that is, uh, that is intrinsically liberated, intrinsically pure and, and free, incorruptible, unconfusible. And that it's you know that's uh, when when there is mindfulness it's that quality which is operating in the world in our within us and is guiding our actions and speech <clears throat> Some years ago at, uh, at Amaravati Monastery, um, we had a visit from the, an elder Chinese master, uh, Master Xunhua, who's the founder and abbot of City of 10,000 Buddhas and many of the of the other um, Buddhist monasteries in the in the Bay Area, a Gold Mountain Monastery in San Francisco and uh, the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and many others. And also he was the one who gave us uh, the land at Abayagiri to... Um, to start that place uh, just before he passed away. Anyway, he made a visit to England and, visit, uh, and came and stayed at Amravati. And I remember very clearly one occasion where we had like, an informal discussion with him. And uh, one of the, the people who was, who was there, Ajahn Sujito, was uh, just about to embark on a pilgrimage to the holy places in India. And he was planning to do this as a, a walk, uh, a thousand-mile-long walk with a, a single companion, Nick Scott, who had also been on a, t- a too-long walk before in England. And Master Hua had no idea that Ajahn Sujito was planning this this, uh, this visit. And, and uh, so Sujito asked him some question about meditation. And uh, Master Hua's response was, when you go to, pra- to practice in the place of the Buddha, do not find fault with anyone or anything. Mm. <laughs> 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 so Ajahn Sajito sort of considered, well that doesn't seem to have any relationship to the question I asked <laughs> but since I'm going to be heading to India in three weeks time <laughs> he took that advice very much to, to, to heart and um, it served him very well and, and, and his time in India was ex- much more uh, arduous and colorful than mine, I was uh, definitely on a, on a much more wimpish <laughs> method of uh, of, uh, of travel uh, but anyway I, I remember that exchange and uh, how much it had helped Ajahn Sajito, particularly in situations like where he was attacked by a group of six um, dacoits and um, he and Nick were being threatened, their, their lives were being threatened to the point where Nick had sort of they surrounded them and they were carrying axes and wooden staves and they were trying to rob them and Nick had started a fight with, with uh, one or two of them and then they'd set off after him and he'd run away. And <laughs> so Ajahn Ag- Sejito was left with the other four. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, this, the, the leader of them had his axe and he was, uh, he was holding it up and, and threatening to bring it down on Ajahn Sejito's head. And uh, he remembered this uh, statement of Master Hua's. He said, you know, do not find fault with anybody. Uh, or anything yeah, for any reason. So he thought, well, I guess even this I shouldn't be finding fault with. <laughs> and he knew, you know, I'm not going to fight. And there's more of them than me anyway. So he put his hands together and started reciting the refuges, pudang Saranangachami. And uh, as he recounted the story, the the man who was who was threatening him was uh, he was like he, he was if uh, it was as if he was trying to bring the axe down, but his his uh, his hands wouldn't move, and then uh, then Ajahn Sajita got a little bit cheeky. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of uh, uh, hard to believe that he would have done this, but he actually le- <laughs> leant forward and he kind of drew a line down the middle of his head like this. So. Go on, mate. You yeah, know that's the, that's the s- <laughs> that's the spot to shoot for, and then kept chanting that you know Sangang Sarananga Chami, and still uh, the fellow couldn't couldn't bring the axe down. So uh, with stories like that, I, I was impressed with this piece of advice. This, this non-contention is good stuff. <laughs> so um, I, I, I carried that with me to, uh, to India, and I thought, well, if I do nothing else, I want to keep, uh, rather than undertaking any kind of special practices or trying to do anything in a particular way, if I just take the simple principle of non-contention, and be guided by that. Uh, Let's see what happens. See how that works. And um, as you might uh, expect, India is not not anywhere special in this regard, but uh, numerous possibilities for contention arose (laughs) each day. Uh, So there was a replete with uh, possibilities for, for disagreeing with what life was offering. Yeah, either from things within myself, or in the environment around me, or with my travelling companions, um, yeah, the, the one or two people that I was I was on the road with, and uh, and yet having just made that simple um, commitment, uh, that uh, resolution to to not contend, um, it was a a very powerful force and a great help and guide because it's 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 so easy for us to move into that you know life shouldn't be this way this isn't fair there's something wrong with this um, and we uh, we enter into a state of argument with the world but as the buddha said uh, i do not contend with the world you know the world contends with me <laughs> but i do not contend with the world and uh, I, I found that it was a. It made a um, a very blessed uh, environment to, to travel and, and to visit the the holy places and to be ready to accept whatever whatever uh, whatever happened, whenever whatever plans we formed, um, either happened. Everything turned out perfectly as we expected, or things went completely awry and we. Uh, uh, suddenly had to do things very, very differently, that, that, that piece of advice would, would, would spring up. And, and even when it was really, really reasonable to complain, <laughs> you know, had a definite good cause to to, um, <laughs> to find fault, then uh, it was like that. It, it helped to sustain that, that quality of, of um, non-suffering not creating suffering where, where, it's, uh, where it would be so easy to do that. Uh, wh- about twen- no, 22 years ago, uh, I made a walk through England with the same fellow, Nick Scott, who was, uh, incidentally, after he ran away from Ajahn Sujito and abandoned him, <laughs> he got a little distance away and was hiding off in the forest, and then he suddenly realized, hang on, I'm supposed to be the Dharma protector. <laughs> You know, I just abandoned my monk. <laughs> so he kind of went. He went back to see if he could help Ajahn Sejito, and, and um, anyway, it got into another tussle with some of the guys. And, but eventually, it all ended happily, and uh, they uh, the Nick was was a bit more scratched and beaten up mm-hmm. and uh, harrowed by the experience. Ajahn Sajito stayed pretty much unscathed, but um, they. Uh, <clears throat> they lear- they learnt some very good lessons from it because uh, Nick said that he realised that if he had died at that time, because he was sort of running away and hiding and and uh, scuffling with the with the attackers, he said if I had died then I would have died with the mind of a hunted animal, and if Ajahn Sajita had died he would have died with his mind fixed on the on the three refuges. <laughs> But uh, anyway, Nick is a great and dear friend. And uh, he and I had gone on this, this three-month-long walk through England in 1983. And uh, one of the things that I had learned from that occasion was all of the months and months of preparation and planning the, the where we were going to go and thinking about equipment, what kind of sandals or boots we should wear or what kind of pack to take or what we should... You know, all of the, the, the thousand considerations for how to do things and what would, what would be um, important, uh, you know, how we would meet with different groups or how we would, would practice or, or where we would stay or camp out and such like. There was one thing, a, 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 one concern that never crossed my mind before we actually set out and it turned out to be the, almost like the biggest presence that was with us on the, the whole walk because it had never occurred to me to take into account the relationship between me and Nick, <laughs> yeah, myself and the other companion, and when you're like in a situation like that, there's sort of two of you handcuffed together. You know, you're totally reliant on each other for a, a period of time. Yeah, the mind is cons- going all the time to to concern about um, what's the other person feeling, how are they doing? You know, we're we going too fast, we're we going too slow. You know, how can we harmonise? And uh, it was so striking how it had never crossed my mind that that would be a factor before we set off. And as we were traveling together, walking through, it was an 800-plus-mile journey through England, how that was so, so dominant. So when I was in India um, before this, that, this trip, I, I made a point of thinking I have to pay direct attention to the relationship I have with my, <laughs> my traveling companions. And so, this uh, principle also of non contention, um, you know, I was very consciously and directly applying to the people that I was spending so much time with. And the reason why I'm sort of going on at length to this is because this is a, it's a very helpful for us in, in our, our life outside of a retreat where you have these situations where there are certain people that you are very, very close to. I mean, I use the term handcuffed, but. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it feels like that, where you're you're immediately dependent on each other, and uh, it did feel like we were married sometimes, uh, with Eric or, or Eric McCord and, and Greg Schaaf, but you know, without the sort of some of the emotional loading of a marriage. <laughs> but that you know, you're committed to helping each other, and there's sort of no escape from from the, the connection. But yet you don't always agree, and you've you've all heard, you've both heard all this, you know, told each other the same stories a <laughs> hundred times already. There's nothing new to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, so that um, that kind of... It's, it's very easy to get into a situation where you you can feel stressed or blaming or, or, or critical of the other person. And uh, so I found that, that the principle of non-contention was uh, amazingly helpful in... Uh, Making it possible to to digest those sort of times of of, uh, of friction or difficulty or disagreement or just boredom, just just you know not wanting to be around the other person. But there you are, you're together. And uh, also, you know, what I, I found was that through that um, a resolution, not to contend, and it's not just a matter of like when I talk about non-contention, it's not just sort of freezing the heart or just sort of. <clears throat> emotionally shutting down but it's in a way seeing that impulse to to blame to criticize to create otherness in a way to impute otherness to the uh, the person that is so close to you and it's like a, a shutting off of the the feeling of of metta and just seeing that happening and saying no we don't we that doesn't have to be done that way we can uh, w- We don't have to to conflict, and that the and I found it was much more able. One was much more able to sustain a quality of openness and and a sort of respectfulness, even when uh, you know that was there was a real difficulty or stress. And things were generally very very harmonious between us, but. I found that because of that, that uh, commitment to, to, to keeping a, an openness and a refusal to, to contend, then I found I was able to learn a lot more about myself. Because My, you know, uh, it became clear that the, the reasons uh, why um, people contend with each other is not always because the other person is at fault. <laughs> Amazing! Amazing! There could be something that I am bringing to this relationship that is <laughs> causing difficulty as well. This is a great revelation. <laughs> so, you know, so I discovered some interesting things about my, uh, my, you know, character traits of mine that that uh, were um, that was you know, helpful to see very clearly. Uh, that um that kind of the, that when you're that close to another person there they can be reflected back to you, and you can see um, your own areas of of habit of clinging um, in a way that uh, perhaps you can't when you when you're not in such a situation of such such closeness and, and connection and uh, I found that I was very grateful for having a, a time, along with being on pilgrimage and visiting the holy places, that uh, that uh, the challenge of, of having to harmonize with uh, one or two other people uh, for an extended period of time, it, it brought a lot of very good lessons in that way. Now also, when we, we say going to practice in the place of the Buddha, um, <clears throat> that doesn't uh, I I don't know exactly what Master Hua meant, but uh, I suspect he wasn't talking just about India. <laughs> that uh, the place of the Buddha in is is more than that. It's, uh, it's like when we are entering into the fold of the the um, Buddhist insight. So, you know, not even just sort of talking about you know, a Buddhist retreat center like Spirit Rock or... <laughs> It's it's more of an attitude of mind, like when the the Buddha was about to pass away in, in Kusinara, and uh, he was uh, lying on his his deathbed, and uh, the uh, the sala trees in the forest had, had burst out into to bloom above him, uh, out of season. That the flowers had come out on the trees and uh, were raining down around him and then out of the sky the heavenly Mandarava blossoms were, were uh, falling from the heavens and the heavenly musicians the Gandavas were playing their, their um, celestial music and uh, hosts of Brahma gods and Devatars were gathered all around through the, through the forest along with all the other human devotees And um, there have been earthquakes and uh, you know, rainbows in the sky and so forth and Ananda in his usual way said, Is it amazing? It's incredible, Lord. You know, never before has the Tathagata the Tathagata been so honored, so revered, so worshipped, you know the the Sala trees have burst out in in bloom out of season and the mandarava blossoms are raining down and so on and so forth and repeated the whole list of things that were going on. <laughs> and the Buddha lying there on his side said, Yes Ananda, it's true. Never before has the Tathagata truly been venerated to, in such a, a, a grand and, and glorious way. But those Ananda, <laughs> but Ananda, those who would really uh, wish to venerate the Tathagata truly and properly, then um, they would practice the eightfold path. <laughs> so, as you know, the, the Buddha was always setting, his loved to set Ananda straight, <laughs> and uh, he um, was was pointing out that you know if we w- really want to worship the Buddha, venerate the Buddha. Uh, then the way we do that is we, we practice uh, sila, samadhi, panya, virtue, concentration, wisdom. That's how we we go to the place of the Buddha. That's the, like we venerate the, the Buddhist holy places by uh, visiting sila, samadhi, panya. That's, that's uh, the, the gesture of, of devotion and respect along with physically going to the the places in you know, Kushanara or Saranath or Lumbini or that we go to the places of uh, of mindfulness and wisdom, we go to the place of of, uh, of virtue and and samadhi concentration. That this is how we uh, we make those uh, those places of pilgrimage real. So. You know, for uh, for myself, it was, uh, I don't, and I don't want to be an India bore, you know, <laughs> endlessly going on about this uh, this uh, trip. But um, when we think about pilgrimage, I mean, certainly the, you know, the Buddha did say those who visit the the places that were significant in his life, it will be for their long lasting welfare and happiness. And certainly for me, going to those places, actually walking on the ground of of the Jetavana Jeta's Grove in Savati, and, and under the, sitting under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, walking the lanes, and sitting in the bamboo grove in Rajgir, and uh, going to uh, Lumbini, and then finally in Kusinara, we finished our pilgrimage um, in uh, the full moon of May in, uh, in Kusinara, and uh, we were, uh, from what I was saying before about the um, going to the holy places in the hot season, we were actually the only pilgrims from outside of the village <laughs> who came to Kusinara for the full moon of May. We were the only ones crazy enough to, to uh, choose to go there. But uh, there is a, there was a, a quality of coming to life of the tradition that was you know, kind of unimaginable how that would be, actually walking on the, the ground and seeing the lie of the land and feeling the places as they as they are had an amazing effect of you know all these the names that for 25 years i've been hearing and and recounting and using suddenly it's like oh that's that place and i and i can see in my mind's eye the the beautiful image of the reclining buddha in kusinara that's yeah you know, maybe 1500 years old with this extraordinary serene peaceful Face of the of the reclining Buddha there, and the um, the, pali- the uh, palace of the of King Udena by the Yamuna River in Kosambi, and uh, the ancient stupas, yeah, the, the, that were built uh, over the sarira, the relics of the Buddha, just after the, his uh, cremation, and that were then developed by Ashoka and uh, subsequent ages. It's an amazingly powerful presence in one's mind, or the place where Ashoka gave up his warlike conquest, uh, conquering ways, and and took on the spiritual path in Bhubaneshwar. Uh, It's incredibly powerful and and, uh, uh, significant to to visit those places. But in a way, if we really want to, to bring it to fruition, then, as the Buddha was pointing out to Ananda under the sala trees, you know, if you really want to venerate the Tathagata in the best possible way, <laughs> then you practice the Eightfold Path. So, in a similar way, we, we, we come to a retreat and we, we develop the practices here, and uh, uh, we can uh, come to this place of the Buddha physically. But what really sustains us, what is the true blessing, as the Buddha was, was pointing out to ananda, the the real blessings come when we we internalize that when we we carry the the space of, of spirit rock or the space of this shrine room, we we find that spaciousness, this kind of lovely symmetrical beauty, a sort of jewel like quality of this uh, this space here, we find that. We train the heart to find that within ourselves, that we remember this, the jewel of, of, uh, of peace and stillness, clarity. It's always here within us, and we remember to visit it. We, we make that pilgrimage, and that uh, is what is the cause for, for benefit and happiness for ourselves for a long time. <clears throat> also, maybe one, one final thing to say about non contention and uh, uh, it can seem i don 't want it to seem like a a principle of passivity you know, when you 're not t- to not contend doesn 't mean to say we just become inert sometimes it means that we we take action, but it 's uh, coming from a, a peaceful place so i 'm just remembering uh uh, we, I didn't have anything... Our, our whole pilgrimage was extremely even and um, we were very uh, 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 very free of any sort of dramatic, great dramatic highs or, or lows or, or dangers. But uh, the, the one uh, somewhat hairy incident that we had actually took place in the Veluvana in the Bamboo Grove, which was the first ever Buddhist monastery in this era uh, that... Uh, this was a little garden that belonged to King Bimbisara of Rajgir, and uh, the Buddha had come to stay in that area. Um, this was just a couple of years after the Enlightenment, and King Bimbisara had offered this this garden to be a, a permanent residence for the for the Buddha and his disciples, the, the bamboo grove. And um, it's the place where the uh, um, there was a. At that time, also a spontaneous gathering of twelve hundred and fifty arahants on the, the full moon day of February. Now, those of you who are given to scepticism might think, <laughs> "Oh yeah, right." <laughs> they didn't even have email <laughs> or text messaging in those days. You know, how could you get twelve hundred and fifty arahants to, to show up without without any prior arrangement to? Uh, But anyway, according to the story, that's where there was a spontaneous gathering. It was the first time the Buddha gave instruction on monastic discipline. So it's called Magha Puja, the month of Magha. So uh, we had gathered, uh, myself and then uh, uh, Eric and and Greg, the the two of them were both with me at that time, uh, gathered in uh, the Veluvana, the bamboo grove, full moon of of, uh, of February. So a very holy occasion. Again, we were the only pilgrims there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, we had been in the, the town earlier that day, and uh, in Rajgir, there are quite a number of Buddhist holy places scattered around outside of the, 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 the town. There's the, the Vulture Peak, where the Buddha gave numbers, of, where he had a kuti, and where the Buddha gave a number of teachings. It's about three or four miles south of the town. There's the, the Sattapani Cave, where the first council Uh, after the Buddha's passing away, the the first council of Arahants where the Pali Canon was laid down, that's up a hill outside of the the town. And there's various other, there's the hot springs and various other things around and about the place. So there's a small cottage industry that uh, the local police engage in, which is providing protection. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so for a, a... if you want to, you can, you can hire a policeman to come along with his rifle and and protect you because the area is also famous for having lots of bandits. So anyway, we were, we were sitting in the town and we um, were just heading back towards the place where we were staying and this policeman came up and uh, indicated that he wanted to offer himself to be our, our protector for a mere hundred rupees for the day and we said, no thanks, we don't need any protection. So um, we managed to persuade him we didn't need him and he took off. And then, <coughs> So we were walking along and, and uh, he- we were heading to the bamboo grove and we, were gonna, and we just uh, went there and we were sitting under on the, on one of the little pavilions by the big uh, lake, a sort of tank they have at the center of the garden there. And we were speculating whether the policemen actually ever ha- had bullets in their rifles because they carry these sort of old three oh three rifles around. And then we realized that the policeman who 'd approached us had come in with two of his friends and followed us into the bamboo grove, and so we were the only ones in there and um, Then the three of the, the three policemen joined us in this little pavilion, and then they were again insisting that it might be a very good idea if, if we employed them to provide protection <laughs> and, uh, and so they were suggesting that rather than giving the, you know, the, than just giving one of them one hundred rupees, we could give fifty rupees to each of them fifty fifty fifty. <laughs> So uh, again, we were indicated that we were not interested in protection, and then, uh, as if to demonstrate that in- indeed their guns did have bullets in, one of them took his rifle and and then, <laughs> uh, you know, holding it with the with the barrel towards Greg's face, and Greg was about here, uh, about 18 inches away from the the, no- the, the nose of the, the of the uh, of the barrel. The guy racked the chamber open, and then, sure enough, there was um, a full. Magazine of bullets. Uh, there was bullets in the chamber, um, so um, you know the pulse rate began to increase at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> this time, but uh, also Greg, uh, though some of you might know him from his uh, time on staff at IMS, he's a kind of no-nonsense sort of person, and um, he he does not appreciate being pressed. <laughs> <laughs> And so, uh, to his to his great credit, with this this sort of gun pointing at his face, he he took his finger and he just uh, pushed the barrel aside like that. And uh, we indicated once more that we were not interested in in uh, protection. And finally, these fellows seemed to get the point and and uh, and took off and uh, left us alone. So <laughs> we sort of sat there for for a minute or two just. Digesting what had <laughs> what had just happened, and then uh, as soon as the the policemen were out of sight, we quickly ducked out of the back gate of the Veluwan and crossed the crossed the fields and went back to the the place where we were staying. And so, uh, you know, though there, there are many Dacoits and, and bandits in India, it, the police, uh, certainly in Bihar and Uttar Pradesh, are much more frightening <laughs> than the bandits because uh, they they have power. They can they can they can lock you up and throw away the key. And, and when we described this incident uh, to other Indian friends um, who were bemoaning the the, the, the corruption and, and kind of uh, low standards of, of sila in the police force, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we recounted this incident and, and he said, this fellow uh, Sumanta Banerjee said, Without any hesitation, if you were Indian, they would have shot you. No, no hesitation. Yeah, that uh, people die in Bihar daily for far less than that. You know, just taking hold of a policeman's gun and and, uh, and uh, defying them like that would—they wouldn't stand for that. It was only because you were white. That's why you. That's why you survived. So. Again, as we were hearing him say that, so matter-of-factly, I, I think both Greg and I kind of <laughs> <laughs> took a sort of sympathetic in-breath. Like, oh yeah, I guess it was pretty close. But, uh, but I did also uh, feel very protected by um, a vast uh, f- uh, field of, of good wishes and uh, benevolent uh, forces of one kind or another. Uh, so much friendship from everyone uh, over here who'd helped support the, the, uh, the time and also just uh, <laughs> the paramita of the Buddha and all of my great teachers that uh, as a powerful, uh, supportive and protective energy. So uh, I was very, very grateful to be able to be uh, buoyed along by that presence. So uh, I will uh, finish there for the evening and uh, offer this all for your reflection. Sādhu, 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 Sādhu. It also reminds me, I think it's Sharon's story about practicing metta. I mean, I think it was, um, she was asking about what, what she should do when she was being harassed by unruly men in India. And uh, was it um, Deepama who's this extremely de- diminutive little, little uh, uh, Indian woman with... Um, very highly accomplished in meditation and extraordinarily restrained, she said, "With all the loving kindness in the world, you should take your umbrella and then wrap him sharply on the head." <laughs> so non-contention sometimes involves, you know, assertive activity whilst one is not contending. <laughs> so we can finish with the uh, the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness. So. Um, Page 28. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, Seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views. The pure-hearted one having clarity of vision Being freed from all sense desires is not born again into this world. The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed one. The teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The blessed ones, disciples, who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha.